Hey, podcast friends. Thanks for tuning in to MakerCast, a podcast about the inner work of creatives from all walks in all places. Morgan James Smith here. I host and produce this show, and I'm glad you're listening today. as a child, I traveled a lot. My parents divorced when I was two, and then when I turned five, my mom and I moved to California and my dad stayed behind in Oregon. There was about 500 miles between us and I was always flitting back and forth. In adulthood, I found art and music and dance and Man, if you want to make a living, you got to travel. Or at least I did. And during the peak in that 10-year period of my life, I would say I was probably on the road between 250 to 300 days per year for a number of years. I became familiar with airports and taxis and later Lyft and Uber. From Chicago to New York City, to Arizona, to Colorado, to Los Angeles. I was just afloat, adrift. And something happened to me that was beyond the desire to make a living or the desire to sort of share my art with a broader demographic. You know, I'd be home for a short time and then I'd catch my next flight. And sometimes I'd string trips together for as long as three months. And what would happen to me upon touchdown would be this feeling of being snapped into the present moment. You kind of have to open up to exactly what's around you in the moment. You have to accept help from strangers. You have to talk to people. You have to let in all the new stimulus all at once just to survive just to figure out where a restroom is or where the which the which bus line or which subway will take you where you need to go and that feeling of kind of making new connections that are just these flashes in the pan is really wonderful There's nothing like it. There's been nothing like it for me in my life. And I would say that I got hooked on it. Because if I was in a malaise, or if I was unable to cultivate presence, or a present state of mind, all I'd have to do is hop on a plane with little plan. And by the time I had arrived, all my senses were tingling, searching, for those small cues to help me navigate through my day or my week or my weekend or my month on the road. Maybe you already saw this coming, but I got burnt out. And my, my little senses that were so stimulated just got fried in the end. Even though it was the most, one of the most joyous times in my life, it was also the most exhausting 
And I think part of that had to do with not really identifying anywhere particular as home. Sure, I paid rent. Yes, I'd put my bags down and do my laundry. But there wasn't a a sense of rootedness, a sense of groundedness. And as the months turned into years of, of living this way, I wasn't able to feel the same immediate opening to the brand newness around me. About four years ago, I kind of dialed it all back and the travel ground to a halt and I got what I needed. I got to be like a stable homebody for a number of years. It was exactly the rest and respite and regeneration that I needed. I guess the best way to get me to do anything is to tell me not to do it. And in March, I got this message that we all got, plain and clear. Do not travel. <laughs> Man, and you know, that's how this podcast was born. Not being able to connect with others in a face-to-face way. And my partner and I live here in Bend in a pretty small apartment. And, you know, by July, August, September, it was... Oof. We needed a trip. Eventually, despite sort of feeling a little hypocritical, we made the decision to take a you know three or four night trip out of here. And one place that had always been on our radar was was a small town in on the Olympic Peninsula in Washington called Port Townsend. And the plan was to bring our bikes and, and bike this discovery path. It was kind of a rails-to-trails operation. And what happened is, upon checking into our little Victorian Airbnb, I saw that water. And I was just called to that big body of water, the Puget Sound. And just, that first night, the moon coming up. It was a full moon. And I'll never forget just how big and golden it was and the colors of the sunset with that like 270 degree panoramic view of water in all directions. And here I am describing something fairly similar to a lot of the beauty I would experience here in Bend, but there I was and it was new. And it had been a number of years since I'd really kind of gotten tapped back into what that feeling is like. There was one like really pivotal moment in that trip, and it was this it was this day when we just chucked all our plans aside. We'd gotten back from a long bike ride, exhausted, and it was like, is that ferry running? And it was this ferry that would take us to this island, and if we timed it just right, we could run down to it, buy tickets, hop on, get off on the island, walk up to this old sort of historical war memorial and catch the sunset and be back to catch the last ferry to the mainland. And the feeling of the wind and the the sunset ride out and the moonrise ride back, it just, it was just brand 
new. And I felt so alive, you know, in a way, you know, talk about four or five months of hunkering down and kind of, you know, self-isolation, self-quarantine, and combined with not having done much travel after, you know, all those years and kind of experiencing that burnout. And I just looked at the buildings and I just saw everything. It was almost as if I had just been born. And it was the it was the last night we had to spend there. And I just wondered to myself, how? How can I touch this? How can I touch this when my surroundings are familiar? How can I touch this sense of being completely enamored with the miracle of life, with every breath, with every sight, with every smell, with every sensation? How can I touch this in my daily life? And I didn't have an answer then, and I don't have an answer now. But the question called to me, because that feeling is so remarkable. The last morning before we left, we got to take a walk down this massive stair set that was 130, 140 steps past a fountain into sort of the downtown waterfront area. And again, you know, I'm just this wide-eyed child, just in love Sure, with the beauty of the town and the, and the Puget Sound, but just with life. And that state, you know, just take a moment. You know, think about when you touch that state and how marvelous it is and how, how it feels like something you want to cherish, but then before you know it, the pressures of the day or the pressures of adulthood or the pressures of a life rip us from that state of wonder. And it's this mystery to me. I want to bring that state of wonder into washing dishes and I don't know how. I was feeling that feeling that you get when you're about to leave a place you don't want to leave. And there's a tiny little park by a tiny little sand beach on this massive body of water. I actually rested my hands on kind of a, a bronze plaque. And I just kind of took a load off and, and leaned into it and just looked out at the water, saying goodbye. And as I looked down, inscribed in this plaque was a poem. And the poem was titled The Fairy. And I could see the fairy as I read the title of the poem. And I remembered that feeling from the night before of, of just zooming across this water. And the spray and the smell and the wind and the cold, the biting cold in the night. And I read the poem and I just, I just thought, this is a perfect poem. It was almost as if I could hear the voice of the author reading it in my head as I read along. It was, it was perfectly describing my experience of craving the present moment and seeing it. And the juxtaposition between that alive, fresh state 
and the, the comfortable hum of familiarity. The Fairy by Mary Lou Sinelli. While crossing the sound, we climb to the upper deck where the sky is spread in a banquet of quarter moon and stars. In summer, more people come topside to be part of this, Whidbey Island behind us, swaying. No wind but a ten-knot breeze, gulls gliding above in the clean, moist air. Mid-sound, there's a clear view of Mount Baker, our great active crest ascending a fault, restless as the two boys who race by me vaulting over a row of vinyl seats. When one tumbles, he has to reassemble his pride with every muscle posed against humiliation. But then he laughs uncontrollably, and it hits me like a caffeine jolt that I want more of that, more quick, quick uncensored releases of pure joy, so I vow right here, on this steel ship, to take more delight in life. I know these words sound ready-made as a bumper sticker, but I want them inside me just the same, so the rest of me might grow around them. Now, pulling up to the island, a jerking motion wobbles the passengers. Some of us are home. Others turn toward the relief map on the wall. I smile at their huddled enthusiasm. All I want is to drive home and be home. But the everydayness of this ferry nudging the dock won't slow them, and I envy their eagerness, the surge of fascination we feel when a place is new. So against the high-stake risk of failing at a resolution, I make a pact to try, at least once a day, to see the beauty of this green and peopled place with the eyes of a newcomer as if I carry a backpack and a wide-angle lens, as if I need a place to stay for the night. I'm reading now from one of Mary Lou Sinelli's many books, A Woman Writing, a Memoir in Essays. Here's the inscription. For Larry, for making dinner as I made my way through another book, and for breakfast, and for lunch. I met my husband on a Saturday on the Soldoak Hot Spring Road. The air smelled of wood smoke. I'd just hitchhiked my way to Port Angeles. When the beat-up Volkswagen van pulled over, I knew the man inside was the man for me. He still is. And just a little window from the ferry to this inscription in one of many books, I had to speak with Mary to get a feeling for 
how she viewed the world and what inner work propelled her and kept her moving forward on this journey of creativity. In many ways, I'm still just surprised Mary picked up the phone when I called her. But before we get into our conversation, by way of introduction, I'd like to play for you an excerpt of Mary Lucinelli reading a passage from one of her own books, The Immigrant's Table. I wrote the book, The Immigrant's Table, because I came to believe how you have to know your history and comprehend your past before you can move beyond it. A writer has to go home to make whole his or her own work. People are from a particular place, a place that stays a part of them no matter where they end up. I'm first generation American. My parents came to this country like so many others after the Second World War. My father from Naples, my mother from Bari. And as a young person, I didn't think that much at all about being Italian. Everyone I knew in my first neighborhood was also Italian. I never stopped to consider that just being a citizen of the United States meant that I was American. American were those kids at school who ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and their mothers wore sneakers when they came to pick them up. But me... And my mother in her leather shoes, her leather heels always, well, we were Italian. I spent the first three years of my life living on the corner of Prince and Elizabeth before my dad made enough money to move us to his suburban dream, a split-level house at the end of a Connecticut cul-de-sac where suddenly the hedges and lawn were as level as the sidewalks we left behind, and I learned really quickly just how dark a true night sky could grow and that I could leave my bicycle outside overnight and no one would steal it. And to a city kid, this was big. And to my dad, everything about our new way of life was about moving up. Up to where, I always wondered, a child's life is so literal. But to my mother, well, to my mother, she'd already left Italy for Little Italy, Little Italy for the suburbs of Connecticut. Cooking was her lifeline, and she refused to waive even a single recipe which meant when the other kids at school were eating bologna sandwiches, smothered in mayonnaise, homogenized as the bread that held them together, I was spooning pasta fagioli out of a steamy thermos, and what had once been my favorite meal now horrified me, and I took to hiding my mother's lunches away rather than suffer the taunting, just the smell of her sausage and peppers would bring to a Connecticut schoolroom cafeteria. It's that vivid imagery that drew me to the ferry and is so present in so much of Mary Lucinelli's work. Of course, read her books, read her poetry, attend her workshops, listen to her speak, And there will be a link to her website in the show notes. But this show, MakerCast, is about the undercurrents inside of an artist beyond the work that they put out publicly that helps inform us as we move forward in our creativity 
of just the subtleties of what makes and sustains a creative life. Mary Lou, this is Morgan. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So MakerCast, tell me about that. This podcast is a, a passion project that delves into the inner work of creatives, not so much the art that is being produced, but the transformation that occurs when we are in the act of creating um, art in all modalities, and everything from the physical, the tactile, the painting, the pottery, to the written word, to the song, to the dance. And it looks, hopefully, with 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 great detail into the, the fortitude that is required within us as human beings to sustain creative practice in the face of a world that tends to value other things more highly. Yes, it does, doesn't it? You see it everywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of have a sense of humor about it because I actually feel like we're the lucky ones. You know, we're... we're mm-hmm. I think whenever you find a creative path into life, we're the lucky ones, you know. You know, I, I, I have friends who are, you know, ITs and techs and, you know, and they generally that if I um, speak to a group like that, when they come up to my book table, all they really want to do is be a writer. You know, so yeah. I, I always tell them, well, then you can't really have that brand new, con-. you know, it has to balance uh, your desire with, with um, the, how much money we're going to make if we stay on the yes. path of creativity. So I think that that's not a bad thing to remind my young students of all the time. I think it's a it's a path that we choose in order to keep being the creative people we are. You can't fall victim mm-hmm. to all of the things, you know, certainly that my friends that are working at uh, Amazon or Google can afford, but that's okay because I feel like I'm happier because <laughs> I live in Seattle, you know, so it's it's a very, um, it's a dynamic world right now in Seattle, that's for sure. Can you say a little more about that? Well, you know, Seattle is experiencing a lot of growing pains. It always has. You know, I've lived here long enough to see it go through a many growing pains, you know, it's always the tech, you know, we, we didn't used to have like the test tech bubbles burst, you know, I'd lived mm-hmm. in San Francisco through that and, and to have it, ha- I feel like it's happened here a little bit too, because in my neighborhood, there were so many Amazon workers, 35,000 new, wow. you know, people apparently. And now none of them are here. They're not working in their office, but nor is the campus coming back to Seattle. It's moving to the other side of the lake. Washington into mm-hmm. Kirkland, so mm-hmm. they really it's it just really kind of like came swept through the city everything was was uh done for Amazon, I believe, and you know they just kind of were that you know a key, I think cities belong to the to people who employ the most, you know they just kind of do right, and now they're right. leaving, and so there's a big gap there you know for for Seattle needs to redefine itself again. You know, if we're no longer Amazon's campus now, who are we? <laughs> so, you know, we've got mm-hmm. Boeing and Amazon both pulling out, you know, so wow. it's kind of dynamic that way. So, and the conversations are everywhere, but we've got so many conversations going on right now with everything going on in the world. So that's just one of yeah. them. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me, where did you find the poem, um, The Fairy? 
I found it in, in steel in Port Townsend. Oh, yes, the plaques. I know I used to live in Port Townsend full time, and I plan on doing that again one day when I'm not needing to. Um, in fact, I was just there this past weekend teaching a, a master class in dance. And every time I go back, it's like, oh, that's my home. It's my home. But yes. I needed to make a living as a, as what, with what I do. And so that was a little difficult there. I've heard poets, and I know that you're a poet and a dancer and an author of, of other types of work. But I'll start with you as a poet because that was how I first came to know you. I've heard mm-hmm. poets describe the act of writing poetry as being more of a channeler or a conduit. What is your experience of writing or writing poetry like? Conduit. Well, you know, I always do feel that way about writing. I mean, I always, sometimes, depending on the project I'm working on, um, you know, I always relate, because I am, I do write other kinds of things. I'm working as a columnist right now, so I'm and I'm working, and I have a children's book coming out. You know, I'm working in a lot of different genres right now. I like sort of going back and forth. And um, I'm working on a new nonfiction book um, as well as a new novel. So I, I have a lot of genres that I, I give so much time to each uh, each month. And then, but I always feel like writing a good poem, I relate it to my dance world. Like, if you can do a good ballet bar, you can dance anything form of dance. You can be a contemporary dancer, a jazz dancer, a modern dancer, because you have that, that, that discipline of, of, of strict and good technique at the bar. The bar is like the mm. fundamental dance line former. And I feel like poetry for me is, if you can write a good poem, I believe you can write good anything. Like Poetry to me zeroes in on the exact of your emotion or your truth. And yes, it's a conduit, but um, to to me, it's directness into my emotions with such clarity. You know, when I'm writing for my columns, for instance, I have to bring the, the conversation a little um, a, a, in a different direction. Uh, a novel, there's so much truth in a novel. I, I actually believe fiction is, is just as honest as a poem. Um, but writing nonfiction, sometimes I believe it is not because even though it's nonfiction, it's all fact-checked and, and it has to be, you know, true. But but true is such a such a funny thing sometimes because a lot of truth is emotional, for especially yeah. for creative people. But in but in a novel, your truth can just be right there because no one's going to fact-check it. Or and I feel like the same is true in a poem, like. Your truth is so stark and revealed, and there's nothing, you cannot lie to yourself when you're writing a poem. At least I can't, you know, I can't speak for other poets and other writers, and my poetry is very accessible. You know, there are certain poetry forms that honestly would go right over my head and still do, <laughs> and, I've, and I've, I've, I've never been one of that school where the poems are a puzzle in, within themselves, a literary puzzle, or I... Uh, academic puzzle, if you will. But for me, I think poetry should be so accessible. It should be so full of clarity. It stings, you know. That's really what I believe. And and um, and that's what I always aimed for. And, you know, in the beginning, I thought I would always be a poet. I, I had no um, inclination of joining all these other genre, genres 
the first way I came out of poetry was I needed to make money, so I started writing. Um, I was writing for the Seattle Times and this um, Seattle PI and various magazines and things like that. And um, and even though I I was making money, I hated it. So I I no longer really? do straight journalism. Yeah, even in my even even in my because you have to realize with journalism, on some way, shape, or form, because I was even. In those days, um, and I still do once in a while, but I was uh, writing commentary for NPR and KUW mm-hmm. and things like that. But, you know, it's always on some level about the advertisers and the listeners mm-hmm. and whoever gives mm-hmm. the media the, the money. And yes. so I, I didn't realize that going into journalism. I always thought I could be as honest as as I wanted, and then I realized mm. that in journalism, you have to be kind of within the fold of whatever of whatever entity you're writing for. So if it's a liberal audience, you can't go right into the right. If it's a conservative audience, you can't go into. The, and it's like you have to you have to you have to write for the agenda of the media. And yes. I I was so yes. naive when I so naive when I entered the world of journalism. And so I love that paycheck, and I did write for some great editors that did let me be more of a creative entity. Um, I was just very naive when I entered it. So I am so glad not to be in that realm anymore and that I don't need to be. <laughs> so my columns now are basically I'm writing for editors that let me let me write my way, and it took years to develop that. But poetry, I in the beginning, I thought I would be a poet forever, and I still feel like yes. my best writing has always been my poetry. Um, and I'm so proud of all of the books that I had, and that and finding publishers for them, that was no easy, easy thing. <laughs> you know, rejections, I always laugh in my workshops when a student will say, you know, I sent it out three times. I'm like, three Three times? I, like, <laughs> I think I sent my first book out like 130 times or whatever. I don't even know how many. Um, but there's like three? Sweetie, oh my gosh, you you, you got to do, um, you know, a lot more than that. <laughs> and of course now it's a little different, you know, so much is online and so much is about just be staying as just an online presence. And that option wasn't really available to me when I first started. I've been mm-hmm. at this for a while. And so, but I still... You know, I still love holding a book in my hands. I don't know any authors too. really that writes to um, to only be read on the screen. And I always tell people at my readings, I just did a reading, believe me or not, some clubs are still actually inviting authors in. They, are, they wear a mask. Yeah. The author does not. I yeah. really love that. Yeah. So I just was yeah. a, a, an author at the university club, and, and I always tell people, and they were always so surprised, no matter what where they're coming from in life, that books are all recycled. If, if you don't want, if you want to be green, buy a book that we. The book industry hasn't bought logs. You know, the paper industry hasn't bought logs for thirty years. They can't afford them. It's right. always the scrap right. or the recycled. You know, the logs come down for housing, and nobody is saying housing is not green. The housing market takes those logs and any any bark, you know, or recycled product, that's where papers are coming from. And I always remind people of that. I said, you know, there's no there's nobody you know, the the, the tech industries are really the ones that are um 
as much as I use tech every single day, but those are the industries that are really far more polluting to the earth right now. So yes. books, when you hold a book in your hand, it's, it's, it's all recycled materials, and it has been forever. So it, it really isn't true, like, um, pay online, save a tree. You know, and I think people need to be reminded. So I do start and end some of my readings anymore with just the truth of the truth of um, books, because books are my world. Um. Books are my religion, writing them, reading them, and it's just impossible to not have an open mind if you read books. So we need to have, an, we need the truth given to us, even if it's from the author, you know, about the very tactileness of the book, too, not just what's inside the mm-hmm. cover. And the smell. Oh, I love the way I mean, an old book smells. I love the way an old book smells, too. I just love... I love all that. And, you know, the recycled papers are so are so wonderful in the way they hold the ink. You know, I've had with some of my uh, some of my books I've been in on, you know, especially if it's like among friends, one of my books, it's in its third printing. So I get a little bit more input. Do you like this paper? Do you like that paper? You don't generally get that on your first printing. But on your third, you, right. you can be a little bit more involved in the process. And it's like the recycled papers are so much more beautiful and hearty and and the, the new papers are flimsy and, um, you know, just, I mean, there's nothing more beautiful to me than how everything about a book is all recycled now. The new papers are all recycled clothing. Ah, oh, they mm. keep clothing all over the world. They just mm-hmm. make paper out of, out of that. It's just, yeah. That moment you spoke of when you were writing as a journalist and it was, you, you felt that there was a paycheck but that maybe was the only reward. There's so much, so many people, so many listeners to this show and in the world that are in a place of feeling stuck and dependent Mm -hmm. on a paycheck. And it takes Mm -hmm. a lot of courage to do what you did, which is to move away from stability into a place where your heart and your life's calling was honored more. Oh, you know, I hated get out, getting out of bed in the morning. I think that for me, um, when I entered the world of, world of journalism, I thought I was going to be able to, like, interview people, tell the truth. There was a lot of that going on, but I think that as so much um, information is bar- we're bombarded with it, uh, the, the journalism that I, the papers I was writing for stopped going in that direction and started going more towards just hard, hard, hard concrete news again. Um, and again, with their agenda in mind. But I think that for me, you know, I live in 450 square feet and, you know, I get house envy when I visit my friends. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I get Mm -hmm. house envy, you know, but I mean, I can't afford a house in Seattle right now. I I would have to move to Centralia or something. I mean, Mm -hmm. the the truth is I do live, um, on, on less, but I also, I cannot claim really to the audience that I have lived on, not too much because um, when my mom died, she did leave me some com- left me comfortable enough to pursue my life. Um, thank goodness, because I'm a dance teacher and I'm a writer, and um, you know. So, but thank gosh, because I don't think that yeah. I could. I would be one of those people. I mean, I've had so many kind of jobs just so that I could be a writer and a dancer. I mean, I've had to work in grocery stores, waitressing, I mean, you know, all of those jobs that all of us have had. But to me, that was still better than, you know, I just, I tried an office job and, 
um, I just couldn't spend my whole day that way. I, I sort of needed to figure out how to live where I could in, enjoy my work. Um, because I, I, I didn't want to get out of bed in the morning when I was making the most money I've made. Mm. So, and everybody has to kind of figure out all of that on their own. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is a hard, it's a hard question, you know, money, we all need money and, and, um, you, you can survive in our culture too well without it. There's not a lot of poets making a lot of money in our culture, that's for sure. And yet, Poets are so passionate about their work and, you know, people making the most sometimes. It just depends. There's no there's no concrete answer for any of it. But I just, it, and it's a difficult thing, too, because par- I've had parents challenge me if I if I encourage their, their student to be, you know, a dancer through life, not just through high yeah. school or a writer through life, not just through college. I've had parents come down on me like, you know, I don't know how you expect my child to you know, to um, afford, you know, how do, how do you expect them to, to support themselves and blah, 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 blah. And that's like, um, I, I've even had, I've written pieces about that, how I address that parent or how I address that student about those decisions we have to make. But none of, you know, everybody finds their own way through it. But it is, I can tell you this, you do have to make decisions where it can't be the newest, this, that, and the other all the time. That, that's yeah. impossible. But worth yeah. it. For me, I don't think I've ever had a choice. I don't think I've ever yeah. had a real choice in the matter. I think I've always known that I, I have to be um, creative in my life and physical, physical and creative. So I've always loved that I could marry dance with my writing career because writing is so sitting at your desk and then dancing is so physical. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you wouldn't want to be... There are so many heartbreaks in being a writer, and there's so many heartbreaks in being a dancer. So if one's not going well, and hopefully the other one you could kind of turn to. <laughs> it's like being having just one, to me, would have felt um, um, too iffy all the time. Describe these heartbreaks to me. Oh, you know, just having, um, you know, like when you need an, like it, you get to a certain place and you need an agent. So you, you're literally on your, like, writing your, like, 30, 40, 50th agent and before you finally get a positive response so that you can mm. maybe move into the realm of fiction. You know, it's, it, you can't really move into the, so you can be like, just love your novel, like, love it to pieces. But you can't even submit it without an agent, you know. And so the heartbreak mm. of trying to find one is was yes. hard, definitely for me. And then that 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 was one one, you know. And then finally finding people that believe in you—that's so up. So the ups are as bad. It's like the downs are as deep as the ups are the ups. And I always yes. tell tell people in whether they're other writers or other dancers or students like if something good happens you make sure you celebrate it you know Mm -hmm. like last night my friend Lois Silver a a well-known artist but her oh people are saying oh things aren't going to sell right now COVID blah 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 she opened last night in the Harris Gallery downtown Seattle Mm -hmm. and pretty much Mm -hmm. sold out wow and um yeah yes people were coming in to support 
this gallery that's in the middle of other buildings that are boarded up, you know? Right. And so just coming out to support her work, but also the gallery. And it was such, we had to go out, we celebrated. It was just such a high moment for her because she had gone in it feeling so low. Like there was nobody going to buy in a time like this. Nobody would even, you know. So you can only have five in the gallery at a time, I think. And so people were like, you know, people wait outside so they can be the part of the five. And just so exciting, so exciting. So, you know, and no matter what that up is, you have to celebrate it because, you know, she probably worked on that show for three years and I would be talking to her and she'd have days. She felt like, Nothing was clicking, and all of her art was just terrible. You know, it's like here she is, this like famous <laughs> artist, but we all have the same feelings, you know. And and I do too. Like there will be days I'm working on a new book. There'll be days I'll open the manuscript and I'm like, oh my god, did I write this? I am so proud. And then there'll be yes. other days I'll open up and I'm like, oh my god, this is horrible. I'm so you know, like wow. and it could be the same page. <laughs> wow. So yeah, there's just. There's just no telling why why that is. It's just the ups and the downs. They they as long as they balance, you know, you can never. Anybody who says it's like all this or all that, they're just. I don't know if they're lying more to us or to themselves, but it's never. Yeah. It's always. It's it's always you know to be a confident failure. It's just like what you have to be every day. You know, it's like nothing teaches you more about the process than the things you try that don't work. You know, and I've tried a lot of different things. I wear a lot of different hats. You know, I've tried have as a speaker. I've tried having a booking agent. I've had several, and I just do it better. I can sell myself on the phone better than they can, and then. Yes. When I get the gig finally, because I'm not famous, but I'm working and I'm working steadily. Right. Um, then you don't. Then I'm like, I'm really happy to to keep all that money rather than give the agent yes. so much of it. If 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 I've supplied the agent with everything, but but in another world, like with the agent you need for, um, like say, to sell a fiction manuscript, you're so glad to give them their percentage because it's it's literally impossible in today's world to to compete on some levels. You can't wear all the hats yourself, so. Um, and I, but I but I wear a lot of them just to keep you know I, I should have said that too about my career it's not just the writing and the dancing but the speaking is really where for me where I can make um, good good money you know I have you have to I'm a good speaker because I've been on stage my whole life you know I don't yes. take that podium and then look down and not know how to address an audience I I address that Gosh. audience as if I'm performing and I am performing and. You, so that's that's led to that's led to a career in that, and thank goodness. You said I misheard you. You either said you have to be a competent failure or a confident failure. Which did you say? A, con- a confident failure, like you have to. Confident. Like you just have to, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, because I think that you're there's going to be. Fa- I think that for me and for most people I know that have been in. A creative realm for a long time. We've had as many failures. In fact, you probably have more failures than than the positives. If you've been in it long enough, I mean, the positives are there, and people can see your resume or whatever, or your bio, and they're like, "Oh, wow, you've done this, this, and this, and this." But I always say, in between this failed and this failed and this, they never even answered my email, or I didn't get that gig. You know, I might have gotten that speaking gig, but I didn't get that one, or you know, it's like. Right. 
there's just as many things that, that, that don't work, but you just keep, you have to be confident through all that, that the next one is coming. It, it's hard for people. I think that's why a lot of people give up on the creative realm because yes. it's hard. There's a lot of disappointment, you know, and you can wallpaper your wall with the people that are telling you your whatever you're creating is not good enough. You, you can. It's it's there's a lot of those. But then there's the one that that isn't and that gets you to the next thing and I just kind of always believe that everything you do just makes your dream come true, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't spend a lot of energy worrying about the future. I just do the next thing. I really just try mm-hmm. to stay focused on the next thing. I don't I don't worry about that big picture in the future. In fact, I don't like it when people ask me those questions. Like a woman at my book table was like, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? And I'm like, I don't even have time to think about that. You know, (laughs) I don't, I don't, I don't, I I don't know why, you know, it felt like a naysayer to me because I I didn't need to see myself anywhere in five years. I needed to enjoy that moment because it had gone so well. Focusing on, the next thing, the very next day, what do you need to do so that you can get that? It's like that will all bring you to the next thing that you need, to making your goals happen. I don't really like to call them your dreams. For me, they're my goals. And I just make the process my goal. And then, and then little by little, what I, what I want to achieve does follow. But you have to stay focused. And there's so many distractions these days. It's really difficult to stay focused, you know. So that's the number one thing for me. I have to. There's a lot of things I don't do. I don't do Facebook. You know, I let my pub. Mm-hmm. I'm on, I'm I'm on Facebook, but I I let my publisher or whatever they they can have me on their Facebook. <laughs> I don't. You know, I don't. Right. Do, there's a lot of things that people do every day that. That I that I don't. I mean, I have a presence, and it's but it's just about my books. It's not about me or my opinions, or I don't have I don't have time for any any of any of that because that is it just takes so much time, and then people wonder why they they aren't doing the things that mean so much to them, you know. Yes. I don't think any of us are going to be on our deathbed wishing we'd spent more time on Facebook, you know. Agree. <laughs> You know, it's just, you know, time organization is, 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 I always, I have the priorities and then, and then whatever I have after that. Oh, I don't watch TV. I'm so out of the TV. Hey, there's a big one. I do not, I do not have time. And you know, it's funny, the longer you don't watch TV, I mean, I do watch films. I love watching films Uh when I have time in the evening. But I do not want to get my news from any cable news. I cannot, uh, I don't watch TV ever. And, you know, the longer you let that go, and I don't want to sound like a TV snob, but the longer you let that go and you read books instead and then you go back on and you see what it is, I it just feels like a, such an insult to me. Yeah. It's an insult because it's like, oh, my gosh, that's what the news has become? Who's tweeting who? <laughs> The, the the poem that, that is draw, has drawn me to you, and now I have more reasons to be drawn to you, but the, the poem, The Fairy, to me, was about finding freshness in the familiar. 
and I'm sure your experience of writing it and, you know, it's been, time has passed, but do you have, do you have any thoughts on, on maintaining a sense of sort of a beginner's mind or a freshness in your outlook, even in the midst of, of daily activities? You know, it's funny that you say that because I don't think I put attention on it. I think that any writing, um, the writing that I love to read and the writing that I love to do is about what is right there in front of you. You know, whether you're mm. seeing it or miss or missing it, people are missing their own lives. I mean, they're missing what's right in front of them every single day because they're so distracted by somewhere else. And it, it's so important to to pay attention to, as a writer, to what's happening clearly right in front of you. I mean, the world is so majestic, but you have to pay close attention to it, you know? The gifts are right there, but I always love, like, seeing something and then what it what it draws from me and then where being drawn out leads me into memory. So it's like that, those, I think those three steps work their way into my writing a lot. Like, what's in front of me? You know, what it what emotion it evokes? And then what do I remember about my life from that uh, emotion? I think that's the kind of writing I like to read as well. You know, I've heard people tell me they don't like it when, like, a novel, for instance, goes into too much emotion. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's why I want to get into the mind of another. I think it's why Mm -hmm. some novels today read more like a film script because people are... It isn't just about the dialogue. It's about what is that writer through her character or through his character feeling about the human journey. That's what I love about reading. Um, it's impossible not to, to feel connected to humanity when you get into the mind of someone else. And that's how you do it, through writing. You know, that's that's the most... And how do you do that the closest and the more most intimate way when it's about something that's very intimate? You know, the very intimacy of that poem is what I believe you like about it. You're so right. When you think of the world of books and writing and art and creativity as a as a spiritual realm, can you delve into that a little bit more for me and how it informs your decisions and influences your your life? Well, you know, it's really funny because as a kid, I remember hiding. I was behind. I have this strong memory of hiding behind the sectional couch, and I was reading at that time like the encyclopedia my parents bought. Um, Mm -hmm. And they couldn't even read English; isn't even their first language. My parents are immigrants, and Mm -hmm. so they bought them to feel proud of you know books. But I was the one reading them, and I remember overhearing our priest tell my mom because I also would like bring my own books to church, and I remember him taking my mother aside and telling telling her not to let me read too much because books would fill my head with, with ideas, you know, and of course they did. And that's the thing, you know, books open the mind. So when I stuck behind the couch to read, I was lost. And, and, and when I look back at my life, this was the fork in my road, being lost like that into the mind of another or even to the idea of somewhere bigger than me and bigger than my own small world that's the fork in my road. That's where I went towards books at that young age. And I knew books would be my future. Reading them then and then later writing them. You know, I, I think 
I discovered so many different ways to see the world and, and myself within that world. I don't think you get that from TV, and I don't think you get that from social media. I believe you get that from books. And this is what my parents were probably most afraid of, because in the silence mm-hmm. of all that reading, so much was being said to me, you know, that they couldn't control. The, you know, when you're reading, you are in this place with your mind and your your emotions, and and it's not passive. It's very involved, even though you are quiet. It's not a passive um, endeavor. Mm. And I think so. I got I got hooked on that 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 um, that feeling really young. When I'm done in the evening, I just, I'm like other people with their favorite TV shows. I'm that way with reading. I just can't wait till I'm, you know, on top of my bed with a good, with my book, <laughs> whatever I'm reading. Yeah. Oh, I have enjoyed this so much. Thank you so much. My name is Mary Lou Sanelli, but you know, my real name is Maria Luisa Sanelli. When I was very young, people started shortening it to Mary Lou, and a lot of people just call me Mary. But my real name is Maria Luisa. None of my books have that name on it because, you know, I just got away. I think when I was little, I was embarrassed. So I was glad that people changed my first grade teacher changed it to Mary Lou. I was kind of, wow, now I'm American, you know, I guess. But now, the older I get, the more I wish I had kept my real name. Great talking to you. All right, you take care, and thanks for all you do, too, too. in the creative realm. Yes, enjoy your hard-boiled egg over your sink. (laughs) I have one right now, too. Okay, bye-bye. Bye, Mary. This episode of MakerCast was recorded and produced right here in beautiful Bend, Oregon. Mary would tell you to grab a book, any book, and start reading. And I say, grab her books. You can find out more about our guest this week at MaryLouSinelli.com, and I'll put a link in the show notes. If you'd like to support the ongoing creation of this podcast, tell a friend, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, or visit Patreon.com slash MakerCast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode. Music